Welcome to The Favorites, the podcast from the Action Network. I am Chad Millman. Today's topic, betting and golf, because the Action Network announced a massive new deal, a first-of-its-kind deal with the PGA Tour. It's called Golf Bet. It's where you can get all the best golf betting action, conversation, content, data, everything you need to enjoy betting on golf. Later on in the show, we've got master impressionist, comedy genius, social media phenomenon, Joey Molinero coming on, as well as Jason Sobel, Action Network senior writer, host of the Action Network podcast. Download, subscribe, rate, review. But first, let's get to the main thing. The main thing. We've got a very special guest, multi-time PGA Tour winner, Mr. Brendan Steele. Brendan Steele. Brendan Steele. Brendan Steele. I just want to be able to hit the ball higher, a little bit farther. Steele with a rip off the 12th. Hard to beat. Wow, that was just jammed in. The man of Steele. How good was that? Wow. Fellas, Brendan, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, guys. I'm really glad you're on. I'm really glad we're doing this deal with the PGA. We've known for two years that like the massive amount of interest that fans are developing in golf, the massive amount of interest that has been developing in golf, I think largely from DFS the past couple of years, like it's bringing an entirely new generation of fans that are getting excited about sort of the opportunity to, got, to watch guys play and what every shot really means. How much are you feeling stuff like that on the course? There has been definitely a huge swing with DFS. I mean, people are always yelling at me, you know, I've, I've got you in my DraftKings this week, or I'm going to need you to finish off this parlay or, you know, whatever they've got going. So, um, I mean, there's a lot of people looking at matchups, uh, DFS, people taking long shots every week because you can get way better odds, obviously, in golf than you can betting other sports, getting guys at 80 to 1, 100 to 1, maybe even more that can win the, win the tournament. So, We've definitely felt a big change in the last few years, and it's it's been fun at times. And then other times, you know, guys are pissed at you because you make a bogey on the last hole, and you're like, well, you know, I'm not actually trying to do that, and it's going to cost me a lot more than it's going to cost you. There, we announced this deal yesterday. The deal was announced. There was a story in the Washington Post, amongst many other places, by Ben Strauss, uh, who's a writer there. And he tweeted out the story, and a writer named Jason Gay from the Wall Street Journal responded that, like, golfers are going to hate this because of the social media response. And my feeling to that is, well, they've already been dealing with it because betting is legal in Europe. They're dealing with it because of DFS. How much do you even worry about something like that? I don't think it's going to change that much. We'll, we'll have to wait and see because even while betting isn't legal in every state, like people find ways to bet. I mean, you can have a book, you can have an online account in the Bahamas or you know, whatever the case may be. So we're, we're seeing it a lot. I'm sure there's going to be a lot more of it now, but we're already getting a lot of hate when we, when we make mistakes anyway. So social media is never a fun place, uh, no matter what you're doing. Steely, I, you can say that you're getting a lot of hate. I would say that you guys are amongst the most coddled athletes and specifically you are most, the most coddled athlete. <laughs> <laughs> if a quarterback doesn't play well, every talk show in that city, every social media guy in that city is 
criticizing that quarterback for the next seven days until he plays again, and then he plays well and they love him again. Whereas golfers aren't necessarily accustomed to that criticism. And I mean, five, 10 years ago, you'd go out there and no one's rooting against you and no one's mad if you don't play well other than yourself and your caddy and your family. Uh, what is it like? Do you, do you like that? Do you embrace the fact that, hey, I've got guys rooting for me. I want them to win. I want to win for myself, but I want them to win by betting on me by playing DFS with uh, using me in a lineup. Yeah, absolutely. I I definitely want that. I definitely embrace it. I mean, I play DFS. I like to gamble on other sports, not on golf, but I I know that feeling and it's nice to feel like you're a part of something. And I would like to to have some great story where somebody that could really use the money wins like a million bucks on a DFS thing because I win the tournament. I mean, that would be really, really cool. So um, I do like that part. I like that specifically I'm the most coddled athlete. That's nice. I appreciate that. Um, I try not to pay attention to what's going on on social media at all because it's not going to be overly helpful to me. But in general, I do think that golfers are, are obviously treated better and more fairly than, than a lot of other athletes. But I, I would argue that there are people that are rooting against you and have been for your entire career, whether it's even just other pros that don't like you, you know, fans that decide that they don't like the way you dress or they don't like your swing or you know, people have always hated my grip and my golf swing and stuff like that. So they think that, you know, they don't want me to play well, but this is going to be interesting. We'll see if it's like, or just a, an instant change, or if it just gradually keeps building momentum the way it has been over the last few years. It's interesting that you say golfers have it better than other, other athletes. I know Sobel's kidding when he says that you're coddled, like you're a guy. On t- I- <laughs> and like, but like he's sitting in his courtesy car right now. I mean, come on. The only but place like- I could get service. <laughs> What kind of courtesy car is that? What is this, a Yukon? Something like that. Coddled. Nice. You could practically live in that thing. You don't even Definitely. It would be better than what I was living in when I was playing the Canadian tour. What were you living in when you were playing the Canadian tour? <laughs> well, we just, on the road, we would always have like three or four guys jammed into some tiny rental car. And none of us were 25, so we had to pay all the extra insurance on it. We'd have guys like sitting on the emergency brake for a three hour drive, you know, kind of thing. So it was wild in those days, but it was super fun. It was probably way more ridiculous than, than anything that happens out here. So we have a lot better stories from the Canadian tour than the PGA tour. Who were some of the guys that you would get jammed into the car with back then? Are you still playing with them? So most of them aren't playing. The guys that I was really close with in those days, a guy named Joe Lanza and Liam Kendrigan, they both played at St. Mary's and we were buddies in college. And then uh, Greg Wells, who's still my closest friend, they're not playing golf anymore. They all turned pro at the same time and we traveled around Canada. There's just not a lot of space for, for guys out here. So unfortunately, most of the time you end up having to get a job after you know four or five years of playing professionally. At what point did you think to yourself, maybe this isn't going to work out for me? Uh, I've had a lot of those moments over the years. I've had them even while I'm playing the PGA Tour uh, that maybe it's like, it's over, it's done, like you're never going to play well again. I heard a quote one time that's, uh, that I thought was really accurate. I think they were talking about a team. I think it was even on, remember when they do the Winter Classic, the lead up to the Winter Classic on HBO? They were talking about how a team is never as, as bad as you think they are when they're at their worst and they're never as good when they're, they're at their best. That's kind of how it is when you're playing golf. Like when you're playing your worst, you think you're never going to come out of it and there's never any hope. And then as soon as you get a feel or play a good round, you think you've got it and it's never going to leave you again. And the reality lies somewhere in the middle, but it's hard to manage those emotions and navigate that while you're, while you're going through it. I will tell you a quick story. The 2015 Safeway Open, what did you leave by three going into the final round? 
I definitely had the lead. I led okay. for the first three rounds. Okay. For sure. So, I mean, first... it was like, you know, he's look he's looking to go wire to wire. He's playing really well, playing his best golf, going into the final round. He's a one-time winner on the PGA Tour already, but uh, feeling really good. Everything's going well. And he blows up in the final round. Final uh, six sure. holes. Yeah. Yeah, really just at the end. It finished in 15th place. And you and I texted that night, and you were not happy with yourself and your game. To put it mildly, um, there was there were idle threats of uh, never picking up a golf club again and, and getting out, which I, I get was just sort of the anchor in the moment. The moral of the story, though, is that he went on to win the 2016 Safeway Open and the 2017 Safeway Open the very <laughs> next two years. And it just goes to show sort of those downs in professional golf and then those wild ups. I mean, the ebbs and flows are, are crazy and sometimes just works in, in sort of mysterious ways like that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that that was a wild, wild turn of events. And um, that was a low point just from the standpoint of I, I really wanted to win that tournament. And I felt like I completely blew it. And I didn't like blow it and finish fifth or third or something. I blew it and, you know, dropped way back. So that's never good. But um, there's other times when, you know, maybe you've missed four or five, six cuts in a row. Guys are going through it right now out here. Um, they're always going through it, and and they don't know if they're ever going to come out the other side. And uh, it can be really, really lonely out here when that's going on. So you've talked about uh, Phil Mickelson being a really good mentor for you, and like teaching you about the value of adding shots to your game year after year. What are some things that you've learned about coming back from? sort of late round disasters like that? What are, what is advice that either Mickelson is giving you or that other veteran tour pros have given you for stuff like that? Phil, um, he told me early on in my career, you're, what you're trying to do is add a shot every year. So what he means by that is maybe you're not a good fairway bunker player and one year you focus on fairway bunker play and then you kind of get that down. I mean, you still have to work on it. You have to have practice on it, but you make that a focus for one specific year. And then the next year, maybe you work on some sort of a bump around the green or a flop shot or a flighted wedge or, you know, doing something like that. And then if you play out here for 15, 20 years, you've added all these different layers of things that you can lean on. And you kind of look up one day and go, wow, I can do this, this, and this that I couldn't do when I was 20. And now I've got all these different things that I can do. So that's kind of speaking to that part. And then for later in the round, Phil's always told me, uh, and specifically after I, I uh, blew up at the 2011 PGA Championship when I had the lead in my first major going in the final round, he told me after the round that what I did wrong was I didn't stay patient enough and use the entire 18 holes to make a score. And that really stuck with me, especially like the last couple events that I had, um, had a chance to win, like uh, even just this last week at Honda. I was really trying to use all 18 holes and not kind of overreact to the fact that I got down a couple shots early. I was trying to be really patient, use the whole 18 holes, the whole round in order to get back into the position I wanted to be in. That is a great story. So at what point does like Mickelson come up to you and say this in 2011? We were texting probably that night or the next day. Um, he was watching pretty close. He's close with Keegan Bradley and I, and, and Keegan won the tournament and I blew it. So he had kind of a weird, you know, range of emotions and kind of like um, he's taken both of us really under his wing from the time we were rookies out here. So um, he had one, one guy do great and one guy blow up. And he was kind of, I think, trying to congratulate him and then pump me up and tell me what I did wrong and help me for the future. So he's pretty awesome that way. How did you guys become close? 
We share the same agent. Keegan and I got on tour at the same time. We both won in Texas our rookie year. And then um, they set up a, a round for us to go play with Phil. And we kind of hit it off. And we've been doing it ever since. All right. Let's take a quick break. I want everyone to listen to the story that our in-house raconteur, Daniel Scotty, had when he confronted an Olympic silver medalist boxer in the parking lot of a fairway in Long Island and how that led to a massive winning bet for Daniel Scotty. So it's the day of the big fight, fight night, if you will, you know, Fury Wilder 2. I'd gone back and forth the entire week leading up to the fight about who I was going to bet on. You know, on Tuesday I was confident in Wilder, but by Wednesday I'm hell-bent on Fury. And this kind of just kept repeating up until Saturday, no clarity given, looking for a sign that could lead me to the winning side of this fight. That leads us to Fairway, where I stopped after my morning cardio to pick up a nice cool kombucha tea to relax on. So I, I walk into Fairway, I grab the kombucha, I walk towards the register, and as I get on the line, I notice that there's an old, decrepit-looking man wheeling a wagon who thought he was before me. And we exchanged some words, but he's an old guy, so I was trying to be as respectful as possible. And it got to a point where he dropped his age as like reason for why I should go first. And I was just like, man, like, lived a long life. I honestly don't give much sympathy to the old card, but you know, in this case, I let him go because he was, he was fighting back. And I was like, you know, this is crazy. So I let him go, he rings out, I ring up my stuff, I walk out. And as I walk into my car, I notice that he's struggling to get his groceries into his. So, you know, if for no other reason other than karma, I figure, you know, let me help old man out. Lee Van Cleef, Clint Eastwood in a few dollars more, that type of boy-old man relationship. So I help him, throw his stuff in, he gives me a big smile, he looks at me, he says, you play any sports? I'm like, nah, look at me, I'm, you know. I kind of retired from the whole sports thing. He pulls out a gold necklace from under his shirt and it's these two big gold-plated boxing gloves. And he goes, I boxed. And I'm like, you watching the fight tonight? And he goes, who's fighting, Lomachenko? <laughs> and at that point, I kind of just assumed this guy didn't know what he was talking about. He was like an old kook or whatever. But he proceeds to speak at length after I tell him it's Fury and Wilder about each of the fighters, their strengths, their weaknesses. And it gets to a point, I ask him who he's got. He goes, Wilder can't box. Fury can box a little bit. Take Fury. And I'm like, shit, like, you know, there's my sign. Long story short, before the guy leaves, he says, yeah, I boxed for Armenia in the 60s, took home a medal in the Olympics. He sticks out his hand to give me like a handshake. And I'm like, nah, 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 we've, we've, come, we've come further than that. So I, I kind of pull him in for a hug. And as I pull him in for a hug, he reels off like four or five quick shots inside, you know, kidney punches, pop, 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 before I could even like look up. And I just smile at the old bastard. I'm like, yeah, you still got it. So I go home and I, you know, empty out the account on Fiori. And man, by the time that fight got stopped in the seventh round, all I wanted to do was thank that old man for the tip. But um, I'll see him around. I'm in that fairway pretty often. All right, let's get to the next thing. The next thing. Sobel, I know you have so many questions about Mickelson and the Tuesday games. Fire away. I love stories. I, I trade in stories. My favorite story of the Tuesday game 
includes you. And Celia, you are not going to tell the story as well as Phil told me the story later that afternoon in the parking lot at TPC Sawgrass. But if you don't tell it as well as Phil, I will fill in some of the blanks in my best Phil voice. All right. So we go out and we play with Colt Nost and Jamie Lovemark. And Phil and I take those guys on and we get off to a good start. We're having our way with them early. And then we start losing some holes and, and we end up getting down two and I'm out of the hole on 16. Phil makes a birdie on the par five with the, all the danger around it um, to push the hole. So we end up uh, down two and even. That starts out the, the press. So whenever we're, uh, we have a dormy press. So if we're two down with two to play, we get a press. So I hit it close on 17 and make a birdie. So now we're one and one. And then we go to 18. I hit it in the right trees. Think Phil's in the water. And the other guys are in a decent spot. And I'm in the pine straw over in the trees. It's not a great spot over there, but I found a gap. And it, it was kind of a fill type shot, which I don't often hit. But I hit this six iron out of the pine straw through the gap to about three and a half feet. And Phil went berserk. He was cheering going down the fairway. He's high-fiving me. He's wrapping his arm around me. He's yelling at the other guys. And we get up there, and now I've got this three-and-a-half-footer that's kind of curling down the hill where Phil's already talking all this trash, like, I have to make this putt. So it's maybe about as nervous as I've ever been on a putt. Uh, Luckily, I made that. So Phil could talk all the trash to the guys, and then he went around and he was telling everybody about all the the great shots that I hit to finish that match. So that's one of the really good stories where I come out on the good side of it. There, there are three blanks that, that <laughs> Phil filled in here. First of all, you guys didn't play too much with Jamie and Colt in the money game. They wanted to get into the Tuesday game. And Phil, there, there was a set price for the Tuesday game. It's a one-time uh, press, you know, a, a price and a press, and, and that's what it was. And Phil basically doubled that number for Jamie and Colt, who didn't know what that price was, said, hey, we got a couple of pigeons. We're, we're going to take these guys. The second thing is that on 17, I don't know if it was on 17T or 17 green, but Phil walked up to Colt's caddy and said, hey, man, I'm really sorry about this. And at the time, it's still, you know, they're still in the lead. And the caddy turns, he's like, what are you talking about? He goes, oh, we're going to birdie this hole. We're going to birdie the next hole. We're going to win everything. And your guys going to be moping around here for the next five days. And the caddy's <laughs> like, yeah, okay, whatever. And that's exactly what happened. The third thing is the way Phil tells the story. And Phil said he was in the middle of the fairway on 18. But they says, all of a sudden, I'm about to hit this shot tight on 18 because, you know, I, I've just got it because my partner's in the trees. Then I see this ball and it just it, it flies and like a butterfly lands on the green right next to the hole. My partner, Brendan Steele, walks out and he walks straight across the water on 18 like Jesus himself, straight onto the green, taps <laughs> it in to make birdie. So we win. Phil embellished a little bit. Phil tells a way better story than I do. So I, I can't keep up with that. But I don't remember is- all of that happening either, but I'm sure it did. <laughs> So what is more pressure, though, playing against Phil on a Tuesday when he's trash talking your ear off and trying to get in your head, trying to close out a tournament on Sunday or trying to win your card? Well, you know, what, what's great about these Tuesday games and the reason that we like to do them is that it's really hard for us to duplicate the kind of pressure that you feel trying to win a tournament or trying to get your card or anytime you really want it. It's hard for us to do that if you just go play a casual round or if you're just practicing. So we like to go play and then see where your game is. You know, like Phil and I will do that on an off week. We'll play on like a Tuesday or Wednesday, see where our game is. 
then go work on things for a couple days that we didn't like about uh, whatever happened in the round and then try to come back and play another match before we before we leave for the next event and see if we've adjusted and, and made things better. Uh, so you get a good barometer for, for where you are and what you're trying to do. Uh, but I get very nervous in those games. Originally, I got really nervous. And for a long time, Keegan and I were getting killed. Phil was killing me when I was at home. And then I've since gotten more comfortable over the last 10 years and I've been able to do a lot better. But it's just like anybody playing around the club. If there's somebody that you really want to beat, maybe it's your buddy, maybe it's your brother, maybe it's your dad. If you want it bad enough, you're going to be nervous. You're going to feel the same things that we feel out here, whether it's playing against Phil or or playing to win a tournament. If you want it bad enough, you get all the same kind of feelings. And that's what makes golf really great. And it's what makes it really hard. Chad, I will tell you a quick story that Phil told me a few years ago, and I I won't give up this player's name. He still plays on tour. I actually really like the guy, but he got into the money game one day on a Tuesday and and Phil was actually on a Wednesday, I think before a major championship. And Phil said, okay, we've got, uh, we've got a few guys. Let's play for X. And the player said, "Ah, you know, Phil, that's kind of a lot of money. Can we just play for 10 times less instead or five times less, whatever it was. And Phil kind of looked at me and goes, I, yeah, I guess. He goes, you, you understand, like, the winning prize is $1.8 million this week. Like, we're playing for that. And, and the money game is nothing even close to that. Don't you want to kind of get those juices flowing? I guess, well, no, I don't really like playing for money that much. Phil has told that story and said, I will never bank on that guy to go and win a tournament in the heat of the moment on a Sunday afternoon, even if he's leading down the stretch on the back nine, just because he's thinking about it too much. He's too nervous and he's not getting himself into those situations where you're playing for money and you have something on the line and and you need to go make a shot. I mean, I think that's a great point. It's also, if it's your own money and you have to physically pull it out of your pocket and hand it to somebody, it's different than if it's this kind of like money that's uh, not yours and that's going to be transferred into your bank account, (laughs) you know, at, at a later date, it's, People always say, oh, how do you make a putt for, you know, a hundred grand on tour or something? It's like, well, you do the best you can. You try to hit the best putt that you can and you hope it goes in. And I've missed plenty for a lot of money and I've made some for some money. And, you know, you just, it's, but it's not actually yours. And when you actually have to go to the bank and get your money and then bring it out, you have to hand it over to one of your friends. That's not very fun. Sobel was telling me how you've got great games with like Matthew Stafford and Matt Ryan. So like, what are those like? Do you have to give them strokes? Do you guys get to play for stakes? Like, will they play you for stakes? Yeah, so we play. I mean, we play just kind of fun games. We like to get team games going. We've got a really good group at, at Shady Canyon at my club. Um, Matt Ryan and Matt Stafford joined uh, last year. Joffrey Lupel, who played for the Maple Leafs for a long time, is a good buddy of mine. Um, our other buddy, Eric, is friends with all those guys. So we kind of get this group together. Joel Klatt that does the... Uh, football for Fox on Saturdays for college football. Um, all these guys love golf. And so, yeah, everybody gets their shots. You know, I played a plus six at home and um, everybody gets as many shots as they, uh, as their handicap dictates. And, and we'll go out and play a lot of team games and talk some trash. And, you know, those are normally pretty low stakes, but they're just more for bragging rights and to have a fun game. Who's all right. So this is good. This is good. Which one of those guys is coolest under pressure when there's a putt that has to be made? Of those guys, well, Matt Ryan and Joel Klatt are both really good putters. Both really like to have putts to, to win matches or to, you know, win a hole. So those two guys are, are very good. I would say Joel Klatt's the best putter in the club. He's, uh, for some reason, just got it, got it kind of nailed. So 
Uh, probably a little nod to Joel, but uh, Matt Ryan right behind him. What is the best foursome you've ever played with? It's probably in these games that I'm that I'm having most recently. You know, with with Matt Ryan, Matthew Stafford. Um, some games with Phil. I played with Phil with uh, Timo Solani before, which is pretty awesome. You know, when you can get these kind of guys that are huge in other sports and they love to play golf to come play with you, and they're so super excited. That's that's pretty great. I'm a huge Kings fan, LA Kings. So I've had Kopitar, Dowdy, and Muzzin out one day together uh, a couple times actually. So so that's pretty awesome for me. I've gotten to do a lot of really great stuff. There's just there's so many good guys that love to play golf. Um, had a couple of rock star groups which is actually kind of through Sobel as well. I met uh, Dave Farrell, who's the bass player for Lincoln Park, through through Sobel. And then he's introduced me to some of his other rock star friends. So played with M Shadows from Avenged Sevenfold and Trey Cool, the drummer for Green Day. It's really been a pretty awesome sport to be a part of. And I don't know that I could narrow it down to one, but uh, there's been a lot of great stuff. I got one more segment I want to do. But before we get to the last segment, how miserable is betting hockey? <laughs> it's so miserable. I was talking about this this morning because uh, my buddy John Curran and I were talking about how bad our numbers are on on Action Network with betting hockey, and we're trying to figure out what we're going to do. He's going to research today and try to figure out what our strategy should actually be. But I, it's my favorite sport. I followed the closer than anything, and I'm terrible at it. It's by, awful. by the way, Chad. You you can tell, and people listening can tell that Steely and I are friends. We talk a lot. I would say like. 0.3% of our conversations are, are about golf and 77% of our conversations are about hockey. I mean, we're, we're talking about hockey. We're talking about fancy football, like all the time, trying to figure stuff out. And we're just banging our head against the wall all the time. Listen, we've been doing a show on, uh, on Twitter called the $20 action network hockey betting show, because, uh, I won't bet more than $20 on hockey because it seems like a miserable thing. And we will have two of our hockey analysts, Mike Lieboff and Sean Zarillo, join me on the show and explain to me what bet I should make that night from whatever the slate is, usually on Thursdays. And inevitably, it ends up being like the Detroit Red Wings plus 193. And I swear to God, we're going to do it again on Thursday. And Mike Lieboff is going to tell me to make a horrible, horrible hockey bet. And if you look at his, his record in the Action Network app, He's probably like at a winning percentage of 375, but he's up probably 150 units because all he does is bet hockey underdogs, which makes for a miserable, miserable, horrible life. It, it really does. And I, I follow him very closely. And it's the way that you have to do it in order to win because there's too much luck and too much chaos going on out there, but it's not fun. And you have to do it every day you'd have to take the dogs every day and just keep whacking where you think there's value and just hoping that that it turns out good for you in the end but it is a miserable way to do it <laughs> do you keep up with it on tour like are you watching hockey every night when you're done with your round or like hanging out before you go into before the next day yeah i'm trying to watch hockey as much as i can and uh, right now i'm i'm doing a lot better with college basketball so i'm watching a little bit more of that that's probably the sport i know least about so that's why i'm doing better you were a huge hockey player growing up, right? Like, wasn't that your original sport? No, I didn't play any hockey. Um, just baseball and soccer growing up. That was a good question, though, Chad. <laughs> I know, right? you, get, you get this far into the pod before you asked a question that, you know, wasn't relevant at all. That was no, good. I swear to God, like, I was doing the research, and I <laughs> feel like on the On The Mark podcast, he mentioned that he played hockey growing up. And maybe I just misheard it, and I, he said he loved hockey growing up. I got it wrong. Listen. It's fine. I, 
I do just, research. Maybe he was firing notes. Winnipeg bets when he was like eight years old, and that's how he Seriously. got into the game. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> All right. Before we get to our last segment, before we get to another thing, I want to bring back our podcast producer, Mr. Matt Mitchell, who has another brilliant segment extolling the virtues of daytime gambling, this time with a very special guest. Hey, thanks a lot, Chad. I'm actually hanging out today at a barbecue at the house of one of my dearest friends, uh, actor and typewriter enthusiast, Tom Hanks. Oh, Tom. 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 What? What is it? What? Are you, if you're hungry, finish the hamburgers. What am I supposed to do? Make you a margarita? Whoa, 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 whoa. Settle down, settle down. It's me. It's me. It's your Uncle Mitch. I love you, man. You love me? I love you, too. I gotta go. Wait, 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 come back, come back. I know you're, you know, sad because I said the movie Apollo 13 totally sucks, but I've got the perfect way to cheer you right up. All right, all right, all right. You tell me what I'm supposed to do. You tell me. What am I supposed to do? Let's gamble in the afternoon. That's good. I'm relieved. That's great. I'm saved. But still. Right, you think there's some kind of horrible catch. But there's not, because we can bet on some old guys in Newport Beach playing golf. I've got to do it. I got to be brave. I got to jump in. With both feet, yes. But why are you so sure? Because I have wasted my entire life and I'm going to die. Now I have a chance to die like a man and I'm going to take it. I've got to take it. I was thinking the exact same thing. I, I was talking with our golf expert, Josh Perry, and he loves Australian golfer Rod Pampling this week on the PGA Tour Champions, the senior tour. So we're going to take Pampling in his first-round matchup Thursday with Robert Carlson, who looks like a, an aging Swedish superhero. But if Pampling is good enough for Josh Perry, he's good enough for us. Right, Tom? I don't care. Man means nothing to me. It's just a name. But that's my mission. It is our mission. Daytime gambling is always the mission. That's right. I'm glad you agree. Well, my manager, Chad Noman, actually said that betting during the day made me a shitty producer. Oh, yeah. Well, great. I'm glad it's funny to you. I had to sneak off into the bathroom and have a good cry. My manager called me a talking pile of pig shit. And did I cry? No! Oh, now you're Mr. Tough Guy. Well, you wouldn't act so tough if you saw that nude selfie Chad was sending around last week. I saw it! And it scared the shit out of me. It scared the shit out of every man in America! Oh, yeah, yeah. Sounds like you definitely saw it. Well, I'm delighted that you'll uh, be joining me here on this little afternoon gambling adventure. Because I've always been a little suspicious of any, you know, paranoid lunatic who'd rather work all day than make a bat. So, you're welcome, Tom. God, you don't know when to quit, do you? Look at me! I'm a shell of a man because of you. We're the ones who are throwing garbage in the streets and lighting fires! We're the ones who are acting suspicious and paranoid! We're the lunatics! Us! Ah, maybe you're right. But we'll get rich pretty soon betting Royals Day games all year round, so don't worry, Tom. To you, Chad. All right, our last segment. Let's get to another thing. Another thing. Sobel, you had a great anecdote in your story coming out of the Honda Classic this weekend, in which you were trailing Brendan the whole time, and he told you something really cool just as the round was starting. Set it up and then let Brendan finish it. So the whole story is that I brought a buddy. Uh, we had the DFS Open this past weekend. A buddy of mine that I play a lot of golf with, also named Jason S. I got some tickets through Steely and I text my buddy. I said, Hey, you're all set with tickets. We'll be good. 
He texts back 30 seconds later, a screenshot, putting a, a hundred bucks on steel at a hundred to one. And, you know, that's a good little payday. And all of a sudden he gets into contention and now it's like, all right, let's go. We got a weekend sweat. And so we're very invested in uh, what steel. I'm always invested in what steel is doing, but in any case, I'm following him during the final round and he's playing with Tommy Fleetwood in the last pairing down by one stroke going into uh, the last day. And Tommy goes out and birdies the first and birdies the second. And we get to the third tee and I don't want to make it sound like, you know, like, yes, I'm rooting for Steele. It's a weird situation where I, I'm a journalist. I'm standing there. I'm just watching. I'm not trying to create any sort of environment where I, you know, I want one to win over the other, this and that. But I also know that I've been out there enough with him that I know what to say to you in certain situations. And you made a couple of pars. wasn't bad, but, you, you know, you're 20 minutes in, you're down three after being down one. And so basically I turned to you walking off to green. I said, you know, Stamkos is out six to eight weeks. So, oh, really? And we started talking hockey for a minute. And we're still waiting on the tee box for about five minutes to tell a couple of other stories we can't tell. And then you said, hey, do you want to know my strategy for today? Sure. I, if you want to divulge it right here on the tee box. <laughs> so the strategy was, since I was down three already, I was going to try to be patient, try to do the fill thing, try to wait back. And I knew that the golf course was so difficult that it was very unlikely that Tommy was going to go shoot six under par and just run away and win the tournament. And if he did, that's fine. Like if I can't match that, I can't match it. But I wanted to have a chance on the last few holes that have water everywhere and chaos and, and things going nuts that I could make a couple good swings that could flip it and give me a chance to win. So I just wanted to be within striking distance once we got to the last three or four holes. And as Sobel said to me later, it, it, uh, unfortunately, it happened a little too quick because I ended up tied for the lead after like six or seven. So it flipped around where I was tied for the lead pretty quick and then was kind of just hanging on, hanging on. And then I had a chance on the last three holes and I just didn't quite, I wasn't quite able to pounce. So the strategy worked until I didn't hit the shots right at the end. But there was also a great anecdote from the story Sobel wrote about in those last few holes, sort of a, an approach that you took when you were making sort of a shot that you felt like you, you had to make explain like the mental process and what that shot was. Yeah. So on, on 18, I need to make an Eagle to get into a playoff. Sunjay M's already in at six under, I'm at four under, uh, the pins tucked pretty far, right. There's water on the right. I don't really have a club that can end up in a good spot for that, that shot, just with the distance that I had and everything. I would have liked to be a lot further back or a lot closer. And so I was talking to my caddy and I was like, well, I know I can hit this shot. It's just obviously very risky. And uh, we decided that you don't get a chance to win golf tournaments very often. And we needed to try to get it up there somewhere to where we could maybe hold a chip or a bunker shot or something. So I hit this slap slice three wood trying to get take probably 20 yards off my three wood and get it moving towards the flag. I pulled it off, except it started a little too far right and went in the water. See, what's amazing to me. So like in that moment, you're thinking... It's better to risk coming in, say, you came in fourth, I think, in the tournament, right? So it's better to risk coming in fourth, fifth, whatever, than taking the safe route and guaranteeing maybe you're going to come in second or third. Yeah. As it turned out, a par would have given me third and a birdie would have given me second, tied for second. But, you know, you just don't get that many chances out here to try to win, especially on the last hole. I mean, you're normally... If you're going to finish fourth or fifth, a lot of the time you're four or five shots back. So for me to finish fourth and, and 
have that chance on 18, it was too good an opportunity to, to pass up. And, and I've, I've gotten off to a good start this year. Um, I lost in a playoff at Sony. So uh, I don't have to worry about keeping my card or anything like that. So we were just like, we're going for the gusto. We're trying to, to get those wins. That's what's really important out here. God, that must matter so much to know that you have your card. You're kind of playing with house money a little bit. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it ended up costing me world ranking points, FedEx Cup points, money, you know, all these different things. But I've gotten so many messages from friends and people watching me that are saying, I'm so glad you tried to hit that shot. Even my wife said afterwards, she was like, I'm so glad you tried to hit that shot <laughs> because you just, you just want to give yourself an opportunity. And, and I think all my friends and stuff, they're just telling me that they're, they're happy because that means that I'm confident and relaxed and like going for it rather than just playing it safe. Chad, let me tell you about, and we always talk about all sports being games of inches and, you know, Hey, just a little thing goes wrong here. A little thing goes right there and can make all the difference. I, I mean, I've for a long time talked about sort of the domino inf- effect in golf. I mean, you can make one more putt in March and then come in one twenty fifth instead of one twenty sixth at the end of the year and keep your card. And then the next year you win instead of being on the corn ferry tour or something like that. Uh, I can tell you a story that, uh, the only other player I've caddied for professionally, uh, Roland Thatcher, because I did caddy for Steely in one round. I caddied a tournament for Roland Thatcher back when he was playing the web.com, when it was still called that. And, and Roland got, got to the PGA Tour. He was a good player. The year that Mark Leishman won in Connecticut was probably about eight, nine, ten years ago, something like that. And, and Roland had a chance. He needed to make birdie on 18. And I swear, I was standing out there. I was, he had about 150 yards in. And I'm standing about halfway between him and the green. And he hits it. And a gust of wind picks up right as he's swinging. It knocks his ball into the front bunker. Well, now he still needs to make a birdie to force a playoff. And so he gets really aggressive with the bunker shot. And it skips way past, goes 20 feet past. Now he two butts. He makes bogey. Instead of, hey, just go down there and make a par, he finishes in second place, keeps his card, makes lots of money. He's happy. Instead, he finished the sheriff, I believe it was third or fourth place, based on the fact that he made bogey and was aggressive and went for it as well he should have with the tournament on the line. Lost his card that year. I'm not sure he ever got it back. And if he did, he didn't get it back for very long. I mean, literally, it was a breath of wind that hit his ball in the air. And that can make all the difference. That story makes me sick to my stomach. There are so many parallels between professional golf and gambling. Do I take a chance and hope that it comes up? Or do I, do I play it safe and not go for it? That's golf. And that's gambling. That's Tim Cup. Absolutely. I love it. You know, going back to the beginning, Jason says, you know, you're coddled and whatever, but, and that golfers have it easier than other athletes. I don't think so because everyone always forgets that like golfers have to pay for everything. And yeah, you get sponsors and things like that, but you have to be paying for your housing. You're paying for your travel. You're paying for your coaches. There's an entire network that exists based on you going out and winning and you have to keep playing for your card every year. All of it is a gamble. The fact that like you're the only one remaining from your buddies who are playing in the Canadian tour and the fact that you're willing to go for it, you know, on a what needs to be the most exquisite shot you're going to shoot over a four day tournament is why you're still playing, I would think. Yeah. I mean, it's also a true meritocracy. It's not subjective at all. It's what score did you shoot? And that's how much money you'll get paid or not. So this is not any let's sign sign a contract with the PGA Tour to make ten million this year. It's you can go out and win the FedEx Cup and win ten million, but uh, you may play bad and not make anything. It's all up to you. Brendan was probably going to make it on tour no matter what. He had the talent. I would say at the the highest level at some point 
you catch that break. You, you kind of make your own luck. You catch a break and you move up just because you're good enough. I play with pros all the time and they're varying levels of professionals. And I don't think a lot of non-golf fans realize just how many different levels of professional golfers there are. But I play with guys who are playing moonlight tour events throughout Florida and playing like one dayers and two dayers and just trying to cash a check somewhere so they can go play again somewhere else. I mean, they're, they're really living check to check and tournament to tournament. And the difference between one of those guys and the guy playing, let's say, the Corn Ferry Tour, which is basically AAA baseball for the PGA Tour, the difference is not that one guy is so much better than the other guy. It's just that he played better at the right time. He caught some breaks. He got a little bit luckier. I mean, that's basically the game. You could say that probably about any other sport as well, but it really is that way in golf. Brendan, here's what I think. I don't know if Phil Mickelson likes to gamble at all. There's not really anything written about that. But I will say that the story Sobel told earlier in the day about Phil sort of playing with a guy on Tuesday who wouldn't up the stakes because he didn't like to play for money. It's obvious why he likes to play with you on the Tuesday games because you got balls and you're going for it. That's what I would say. Nice work. Well, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. But uh, I mean, everything that Phil does, you can see it the way he plays. He plays to win. He takes on all the risk. That's the way he's always done it. That's why he's so popular out here. And that's why he's won so much. So he's going to have his failures. He's going to have times when he doesn't pull the shot off, but he always gives himself that chance to hit the shot like on 13 at Augusta. You know, that's always going to be in his DNA. And I've tried to learn from that as much as I can, but uh, it's difficult. Also, you've got huge balls just for coming on this podcast. It's always a risky proposition. Very risky. Brendan Steele, Jason Sobel. Thanks so much for coming on, guys. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. All right. As promised, up next on the Favorites Podcast, social media sensation, comedy, impression, genius, Joey Molinaro is on the phone right now. Joey, you have had a whirlwind of, I'd say, a month where you are racking up these kind of views for doing impressions of everything from famous guys in sports, funny videos. Tell people how this started for you. I really, well, thanks for having me too, Chad. It's nice to, to talk to you, you know, uh, here um, after connecting for a while. But um, really, I've been doing this for a long time uh, in terms of making funny videos and doing skits and um, been doing it for at least three years kind of publicly uh, trying to build some things. Um, and then impersonations, I've been doing them since I was a kid. Now, they weren't of well-known people or public figures, but I've been known as somebody who you know would get the knack down for doing voices and 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 things like that for a long time so really um you know in the last six months seven months but like you said especially since the start of the, the calendar year in 2020 everything's just really started to pick up so you live in indy uh we've mm-hmm. talked about this i'm an iu alum so i always get excited when like i'm talking to someone who's making good from the state of indiana what do you do in indy tell people what you do yeah so my day job is i work for um, 107.5 The Fan in Indianapolis. It's our ESPN affiliate here in town. So it's like where the the home of the Pacers and the uh, Colts, you know, we have um, weekday talk shows. I host a weekend show on that station. But then during the week, I'm just writing for the website, doing social media posts. I have a weekly YouTube series that I do here. So that's the day job that, um, you know, keeps keeps uh, the roof over the head, as they say. And you make a lot of fun of Dan Dockich. Uh, I'm starting to now. Yeah, we're on good terms. He likes me. You know, he can be a tough cookie to crack. So um, and now I can have a little bit of fun with him. Yeah. So 
when you started doing this, what was people's response when you started doing some of the bigger names impressions? Mostly good. People enjoy them and have fun with them. And, um, you know, that's what I'm out to do is just make people laugh. And I don't ever try to do impressions that you know, make people look bad or put them in a bad light. You know, I just like to have fun with it. I just like to do kind of a sketch comedy feel with it. And I haven't really had too much negative feedback. You know, if I do have negative feedback, it's from a fan base that maybe is upset about other things involving their team, but then they just kind of lash out and take it out on me. But actually interviewed, uh, you know, Nick Saban is one of the guys that I, that I do and have been known to do. I interviewed his daughter on my, my show here uh, this week and was just trying to, you know, if I can't get Coach Saban and get his daughter and kind of talk about that. So, yeah, it's been fun. So what's happened the, since like the beginning of the year that you think made this blow up a little bit? I, I, I don't know. I think that, um, you know, to give myself a lot of credit, I think that the reason that they do so well so often is because one, I try to impersonate or capture people that haven't been impersonated or captured that much, right? You know, I mean, Frank Caliendo, he's been great to me. He's a definitely a huge influence. Like now I consider him a mentor and a friend, but he's nailed down a lot of people that now anytime that somebody does an impression of those people, say John Gruden or say, I mean, John Madden, yeah, I mean, there's so many people kind of think of him. So I think that's one thing is I've tried to do people that haven't necessarily been been impersonated too often. And then I think another thing is the situations that I put them in, right? So Nick Saban talking to his daughter about math. There's automatically comedy built in there. Then the impression on top of it is just kind of a bonus at that point. And I think that that recipe has, has really done well. And then the fact that, you know, I tried to take pride in not just doing impressions. You know, I try to put out regular skits and videos that are just different characters that I come up with or, or, or different skits that don't have anything to do with impressions. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say is like some of the things that have really blown up have been the video of you coming out and you've got your comedy partner doing an interview with you in the middle of like classes, right? Which is just yeah. hilariously funny. Cause I think about what one of my, you know, one of my kids is in high school and the way you describe sort of getting energy from the kids and later in the day is just freaking hilarious. Thank you. Yeah. That's what I strive for is just try to be as creative as possible, have as much fun with it as I can. You know, I always say, no offense to my mom, but like she, you know, she doesn't like the Beatles, right? So in my mind, I'm like, who doesn't like the Beatles, right? So there's there's always gonna be people out there who have negative things to say, but uh, for the most part, you know, it's, it's been great. So we've talked a little bit about, um, you know, you're from Indy and you're a sports fan. You know your way around betting a little bit. Obviously, sports betting becoming more and more popular. Obviously, sports betting now legal in Indiana. We had talked about you doing an impression of like Gus Johnson when all of a sudden the game that he's broadcasting, it's really about who's going to cover or whether or not the total is going to go over the spread and what that looks like if there's like three minutes left. and He's super excited and it has nothing to do with the way the game ends. It's just about covering the total. For sure. You want to give it a shot? Let's give it a shot, man. Let's have Gus set the scene. Let's see what happens. This is a brand new All experiment. Right. We've never tried this before on the favorites. So we're, I don't really know how to do it. So let's see if like oh. you can set the scene. <laughs> Bloomington, Indiana. The Hoosiers and the Boilermakers of Purdue. A rivalry contest on Fox Sports 1. Here comes the Hoosiers, 68-67, three and a half minutes left to play. The over set at 140. Joey Brunk inside. He missed. Here comes 
no gel. Eastern, Eastern going east to west. West Coast coming. No gel, Eastern. Up, guided in. Got it. He got it, 69-68. Boilers with the lead. Assembly Hall rocking. Ha, ha, ha. Here come the Hoosiers. The ho, ho, Hoosiers rocking and socking on their home floor. Robert Fantasy, Fantasy shaking bacon. Looking like Talladega, nice shaking bacon. Ha, ha. Fantasy for the three. Oh, got it. That's the over. Three minutes left at Assembly Hall. Ha, ha, ha. And you're going home making money. I'm Gus Johnson. <laughs> oh, my God. That was uh, fun. just brilliant. That was fun. That was brilliant. Was that fun? I'm ready to go again. That was great. I liked it, Gus. <laughs> that was so funny. So, like, when you're going through that, how much is coming to you, like, in the moment? All in the moment, man. I just... And that's one of my favorite things is like really trying to embody this person. You know what I mean? Like, even if it's not exactly something they'd say, it's still the fun of it, of Gus Johnson, just who knows what the hell he's talking about, right? Like Talladega Knights, three minutes left to go. But he would say that, like you would, you just don't know. So that's part of impersonation too, especially on the spot is like, you got to just roll with it. You can't stumble on yourself or think about it too much because then if you do, then you, you break character and you're screwed. Yeah, I got to say, you're a pro. The fact you were able to sort of ramp up to that and on the spot, like flip the idea because we had had a different idea entirely. Unbelievably impressive. Really appreciate it. Glad like you're following is skyrocketing and more and more people are paying attention. Joey Molinero, brilliant impressionist. Thank you for coming on The Favorites. Thanks, Chad. It was a lot of fun, guys. Talk to you soon. As always, we're going to close with some inspirational words from our leader, our CEO at the Action Network, Mr. Patrick Keene. You do not hand in crap like this. I should fire you and burn down your friggin' house. Another exciting show. This has been the favorites from the Action Network, downloaded from Apple Podcasts, from Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Rate, listen, review, subscribe, unsubscribe, resubscribe, make comments. Until next time, love you.